the earth turned once a day. It had to be moving at an unbelievable speed. She thought she could now actually feel the earth turn, not just imagine it, but really feel it in the pit of her stomach. It was like descending in a fast elevator. Gratifyingly, she was overtaken by the giddy sense that unless she clutched the clumps of grass on either side of her, she would fall up into the sky. When she was eleven, her beloved father died, and everything changed. In the seventh grade, they were studying pi. It was a Greek letter that looked like the architecture at Stonehenge. If you measured the circumference of a circle and then divided it by the circle's diameter, that was pi. The teacher said that pi was about 3.1416. But if you wanted to be exact, it was a decimal that went on and on forever without repeating the pattern of the numbers. Forever, Ellie thought. She raised her hand. How do you know? How can you count decimals forever? Miss Arroway, this is a stupid question. You're wasting the class's time. Well, no one had ever called Ellie stupid before. She ran out of class sobbing. After school, she bicycled to the library at the nearby college to look through books on mathematics. If you knew something called calculus, you could prove formulas for pi that would let you calculate it to as many decimals as you had time for. She was determined to learn calculus. The book said that pi was a transcendental number. There was no equation with ordinary numbers in it that could give you pi unless it was infinitely long. She had already taught herself a little algebra and understood what this meant. In fact, there was an infinity of transcendental numbers. In more ways than one, pi was tied to infinity. She had caught a glimpse of something majestic. She saw through John Stoughton from the first. How her mother could even contemplate marrying him was a mystery, never mind that it was only two years after her father's death. He was nice enough looking, and he could pretend when he put his mind to it that he really cared about you. But he was a martinet, puffed up with self-importance. She was sure that as an associate professor of physics, he secretly despised her dead father, who had been only a shopkeeper. Stodden had made it clear that an interest in radio and electronics was unseemly for a girl, that it would not catch her a husband, that understanding physics was for her a foolish and aberrational notion. It was pretentious. This was an objective fact that she might as well get used to. He was telling her for her own good. She'd thank him for it in later life. That her mother could truly love him was inconceivable. She needed someone to take care of her. Ellie vowed she would never accept a position of dependence. Ellie's father had died, her mother had grown distant, and Ellie felt herself exiled to the house of a tyrant. There was no one to call her precious anymore. She longed to escape. Surrounding the blue-white star in its equatorial plane was a vast ring of orbiting debris. The world-sized polyhedron plummeted through a gap in the rings and emerged out the other side. In the ring plane, it had been intermittently shadowed by icy boulders and tumbling mountains. But now, carried along its trajectory toward a point above the opposite pole of the star, the sunlight gleamed off its millions of bowl-shaped appendages. If you looked very carefully, you might have seen one of them make a slight pointing adjustment. You would not have seen the burst of radio waves washing out from it into the depths of space. 
Ellie would look up at Venus and imagine it was a world something like the Earth. She would examine the night sky and scrutinize that unflickering bright point of light. Sometimes she could almost convince herself that she could really see it. A swirl of yellow fog would suddenly clear and a vast jeweled city would briefly be revealed. She would imagine a young Venusian glancing up at a bright blue point of light in its sky, standing on tiptoe and wondering about the inhabitants of Earth. It was an irresistible notion. She'd half expected not to attend college, although she was determined to leave home. Stoughton would not pay for her to go anywhere but the community college where he taught. But Ellie had done spectacularly well on the standardized college entrance exams and accepted a scholarship to Harvard. She arrived for orientation period, a pretty dark-haired young woman of middling height with a lopsided smile and an eagerness to learn everything. She set out to take as many courses as possible apart from her central interests in mathematics, physics, and engineering. But there was a problem with her central interests. She found it difficult to discuss physics, much less debate it, with her predominantly male classmates. There would be a slight pause, and then they would go on as if she'd not spoken. Occasionally they would acknowledge her remark, or even praise it, and then again continue undeflected. She was reasonably sure her remarks were not entirely foolish, and did not wish to be ignored, much less ignored and patronized alternately. So she developed a physics voice, a professional voice clear, competent, and loud. It was hard to continue long in such a voice, though, because she was sometimes in danger of bursting out laughing. And every time she found herself in a new group, she would have to fight her way through again just to dip her oar into the discussion. The boys were uniformly unaware that there was a problem. At the height of the sexual revolution, she experimented with gradually increasing enthusiasm, but found she was intimidating her would-be lovers. Her relationships tended to last a few months or less, the alternative seemed to be to disguise her interests and stifle her opinions. In the late 1960s, the Soviet Union succeeded in landing space vehicles on the surface of Venus, the first spacecraft of the human species to set down in working order on another planet. Over a decade earlier, American radio astronomers confined to Earth had discovered that Venus was an intense source of radio emission. The most popular explanation had been that the massive atmosphere of Venus trapped heat through a planetary greenhouse effect, and the surface of the planet was stifling hot. When the Soviets' Venera spacecraft confirmed that the temperature of the atmosphere of Venus was hot enough to melt lead, Ellie had to admire how powerful radio astronomy was. The astronomers had sat home, pointed their radio telescopes at Venus, and measured the surface temperature just about as accurately as the Venera probes did 13 years later. Ellie began to visit the university's modest radio telescope, eventually getting an invitation to help with the observations and the data analysis. She was accepted as a paid summer assistant at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia, and found that the atmosphere of patient inquiry and the occasional rewards of modest discovery were agreeable to her. They were trying to measure how the number of distant extragalactic radio sources increased as they looked deeper into space. She began to think about better ways of detecting faint radio signals. In due course, she graduated cum laude from Harvard and went on for graduate work in radio astronomy at the California Institute of Technology. For a year, she apprenticed herself to David Drumlin. He had a worldwide reputation for brilliance, 
But was at heart one of those men you can find at the top of every profession who are in a state of unrelieved anxiety that someone, somewhere, might prove smarter than they. Drummond taught Ellie some of the real heart of the subject, especially its theoretical underpinnings. She was too romantic, he would say. The universe is strictly ordered according to its own rules. The idea is to think as the universe does, not to foist our romantic predispositions and girlish longings on the universe. He was a man in excellent physical condition. Prematurely gray hair, sardonic smile, half-moon reading glasses perched toward the end of his nose, bow-tie, square jaw, and remnants of a Montana twang. Other professors looked on graduate students as resources for the future, the intellectual torchbearers to the next generation. But to David Drumlin, graduate students were gunslingers. There was no telling which of them might at any moment challenge him. They were to be kept in their places. A stimulating afternoon for his graduate students would be for them to be invited over in twos or threes to drive him to the edge of a favorite cliff near Pacific Palisades. Casually attached to his hang glider, he would leap off the precipice toward the tranquil ocean a few hundred feet below. Their job was to drive down the coast road and retrieve him. It was quite a performance. In her second year at Caltech, Peter Valerian returned to campus from a sabbatical year abroad. He was a gentle and unprepossessing man. No one, least of all himself, considered him especially brilliant. Yet he had a steady record of significant accomplishment in radio astronomy because, he explained when pressed, he kept at it. There was one slightly disreputable aspect of his scientific career. He was fascinated by the...